0: Well, good morning, Lake Avenue Church. I'm so grateful that you're here today to worship as we have already and to continue. Uh, before I bring up our guest this morning, a friend of ours as a church, I want to say a couple of things to you. One, if you don't have lunch plans today, that 1230 lunch that Pastor John has, isn't that, it's Matthew John. So when we say Pastor, Pastor Matthew invited you to, uh, you know, for so many of us who call Lake Avenue our church, we are unaware of some of the things that God has invited us into through our international staff. And it's one of these things that really blows me away, that we have people doing things in parts of this world that we can't publicize, talk about, or even share their names. And I would really invite you to come, if you're able, at 1230 today, to hear from one of those, one of those people who's doing risky and wonderful. I think your faith will be encouraged for going. The second thing I want to point out is you are, and we are, a responsive congregation. Uh, In my time here, I can remember things like Hurricane Katrina. I can remember in Thailand with the tsunami. Um, And so we have another crisis in the Bahamas. And as details begin to come out of the devastation and the needs that are there, I want you to know we're we're thinking and praying and asking the question, how might we uh, respond as a congregation? What we're not doing this weekend is we're not taking an offering, but we have identified a ministry that Pastor Scott, our global outreach pastor, thinks this is the best group right now. If, so if you're interested, please go to our website. It should be right there on the home page. It will tell you of the ministry we are partnering with and how you can give to them directly. And in coming days, as we get more information around the needs, obviously, if the Lord calls us to that, we will do what we do at Lake Avenue Church, and we will respond to God's invitation. So I wanted you to have those couple of details. You've picked a great morning to be here. You know we're in a three-week series where we've invited friends and guests to come speak to us in our season of transition. And today, in a moment, I will invite up to you, up to this uh, pulpit, this stage, uh, Dr. Mark Laberton, who's currently the president of Fuller Seminary. Um, You can read his bio, you can Google his name, and hopefully you've read some of his books or you might subscribe to what I think is one of the best podcasts out there called Conversing. Um, But I want you to know my connection to Mark. We met many years ago when we were both at Mount Hermon, a group of families from Lake Avenue Church were at family camp. I was invited to be the middle school and high school speaker, and we had a meeting before with all the leadership of Mount Hermon, and there was someone who I was very familiar with, at least the name. Mark Laberton. In fact, my wife used to make me bring home Leadership Journal every time I got it because Mark used to write the back, the back story in that, in that magazine. And now I'm sitting across from somebody I know and that I respect and whose words have shaped me. And here was the only problem I'm speaking to the youth the same time he's speaking to the adults. So I've already lost my wife. She has let me know I'm not going to hear you speak this week, I'm going to go to the adult meetings. And now I'm feeling a little left out, and so I was able to go meet with the staff of Mount Hermon and made up this wonderfully fabricated story about how it's better for youth to have the speaker first, and then you sing after. So I would finish my speaking and run as fast as I could so that I could sit under his teaching for the week, and it was a marvelous week. And since then, Mark has been extremely kind to me as he moved to town and has become the president, and I enjoy my relationship with him, and I know this— uh, that the Spirit is going to move this morning through his words. Would you give a hearty, ele- I told him you are the more energetic, fired-up service. So can you prove it? Would you welcome Dr. Mark Laberton? <clears throat>
1: <clears throat> so on the Richter scale, you're already higher, really, than the first service. So that's a good sign. It's great to be here. I love this congregation, and I'm so thankful for Lake Avenue and all the ways that it has touched the lives of people that I love over the, over the many, many years. It's also, as you know, touched uh, Fuller Seminary, where I serve, and, and our lives in various ways have been intertwined for decades, and I know that you're also in a season of transition. I have been through such seasons. We are in our own transition at Fuller. So I just want to say how really grateful I am for uh, Greg Waybright, for his amazing and faithful ministry over the years that he was here. And I'm also really excited that Jeff has now been appointed into this parenthesis role as uh, the acting pastor in this period of time. These are really critical days when the Church of Jesus Christ matters perhaps as much or more than it's ever mattered in the world, not least in our own country. And yet, for all the reasons that we all know, this is also a season fraught with challenges and difficulties and tensions and divisions and so many things that that make how it is that we live our life as as people who seek to honor Jesus Christ faithfully, sometimes even harder. So my prayers for Jeff, my prayers for all of you are that this season will really be a period that God will use to awaken some things that that are God's heart and priorities for you. And there will be a period of time when you will have a sense of of a fresh work of the Holy Spirit among you. I have seen it often happen in these seasons. Nobody is naive about the challenges that can come with transitions. It's understandable what that means as we go through transitions at Fuller about where we're going to be located and other things that are all a part of this season. We have our own surprises and our own challenges, our own interruptions. You can certainly pray for us. We will be praying for you. This morning as we uh, come to look at God's word, let's pray together and ask for the Holy Spirit to speak. Oh God, we live in a world of change and this congregation is in a season of change and the institution that I lead is in a period of change and we know the reality of change in our own lives. And there are days when that sounds like really good news and there are other days when we just say enough. So today, oh God, we pray that as this new season of transition opens up at Lake Avenue, that today as we listen to your word and in the days and weeks and months that are ahead, that you will use this season to be a parenthesis of grace. Oh Lord, may it be so. And as we think together about your word, may we have ears to hear and lives that trust and follow. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to turn first to Isaiah 43 and then Isaiah 46, but let me just set the stage. Let's remember the big dramatic arc of the whole of the Bible. God has created a world for which we are meant to actually display God's glory. That is, we are meant to reflect back to God the reality of God's intentions and designs. This is why one of the biggest words in the Bible is simply the word worship. It's big because it encompasses really the whole created order. It's the reason for which everything and everyone has been made. And the great reordering of power that is meant to occur in faithful worship is a power that is reordered in every element of our lives as a result of our response to the power of God's love and mercy and grace ultimately in Jesus Christ. And now we work out in our lives through all of the dimensions of our public and private worship, the implications of what it means to live a life of reordered power. Because the crisis of our human experience is the crisis of disordered power. It's why the stories of every day's newspaper are filled with stories of anguish and suffering and abuse and violence. Why? Because it's a story of of abusive power. And we all live in minor, major and minor ways in that world, and we experience it in our own minds and hearts and bodies, and we are called to be people who are be, made new by being people who learn to live in a light of the, the reordering power and grace and truth of God's love. This was why God called forth a people, to say to the people of Israel, it's you that I will give you my name, I'll give you my law, I'll give you all of the gifts of God's mercy that will accompany you through rescue and deliverance and through the establishment of the kingdom and through the gift of a promised land and through the giving of a king and through the building of a temple and all of these gifts that will unfold over the source of this to be signs that I am with you in this journey. But I'm going to call you to worship me And I call you to worship me, God says, because I want your life to be reordered from the very core all the way to the furthest public expression in order to be able to be a manifestation of the right use of order for the sake of a flourishing creation, for the sake of a flourishing society, for the sake of a flourishing communion within families and neighborhoods and societies. Those are the places where justice, the right use of power, is meant to be demonstrated where the evidence of the presence of injustice is expunged because the right use of power leans toward the vulnerable and the weak and the broken and reorders it in a way that's going to reflect God's love. This is the great ark and ultimately it comes to its fulfillment in Jesus Christ who is God's life and power, character, love, mercy, justice, all incarnate and fleshed in Jesus Christ. Now, remember in the Old Testament, there are two great arcs. The first is the Ark of the, of the Exodus. Israel is living under the abusive power of Egypt. They are suffering, they are crying, and the text says that God heard their cries. It's one of the most poignant forms of God's divine empathy. He hears us. He hear- heard Israel, and he delivered Israel and brought them out, brought them out from the power of Egypt and all of its dominating abusive authority took them through the promised land, took them through the wilderness into the promised land. The second great paradigm of the Old Testament is really the story of, of the exile. This is a more complicated story. It's a story of the fact that, that now God's people who have been brought into the promised land, who have been given every possible gift who, for whom God has been faithful generation by generation by generation, but they are not faithful to God. And he begins to spend, send prophets major and minor prophets. That's sort of long and short books, not important and unimportant. Major and minor prophets. And God reveals through these prophets a fairly consistent word. You come and you worship me. You come into my temple. You say the right words. You say that you understand who I am. But in actual fact, God says to the pro- through the prophets, I hate your worship. I hate it because in the end, it doesn't produce a life that looks like mine. You come to worship, God says in Isaiah 58, as if you were a people who practiced righteousness. This whole sense that it's a kind of pretense. We do it as if we were actually interested in living the life of God. And God says, I'm not wanting you to just appear to live the life of God. I'm wanting you to actually be a reflection of the life of God. But what happens is that you come into my temple, you say that you worship me, you keep your Sabbaths and your festivals, but actually at your workplace, you're unjust. In the way that you treat people that are around you, you're unfair. In the way that you see your neighbor, you're demeaning. You're interested really in yourself, not in me. And the people people that are demonstrating faithful worship are people whose experiences of worship will transform the way that we live in the world. And a failure to do that means that what you say in the temple is not what you live in the streets. And if it's not evident in the streets, then what happens in the temple is bankrupt. This is a salty, challenging, confrontational word. And it's about reordering their life, calling them to a deeper experience and understanding of what it is that God is wanting to do in the people of Israel. You look just like your neighbor's. That's what every study seems to suggest about the American church. We look just like the surrounding culture. The sociology that we live in is primarily simply duplicated with a little dab of Jesus on the top and some great praise songs, but really in the end, we're just like our neighbor. That, in the language of the Bible, is an indictment. But God, always a God of hope, always a God who's gonna tell the painful truth but then bring us to a new day, does that Throughout the prophets, even through the gift of the call to exile, now, stripped of the land, stripped of the temple, stripped of all of the ritual that you think defines your worship, now who are you going to worship? That's really the challenge of being a faithful exile, a stranger in a strange land. Isaiah straddles this season. It's a book which captures, in one sense, a lot of what it had been like to live in Jerusalem, but on the other hand, it's an indictment and a telling of the story of what happens when Israel is now finds itself in exile. It's in a transition. If you think you're in a transition, let me assure you the exile is a bigger transition. It is a big deal to lose a beloved senior pastor. It is a big deal to be in a season of transition. But right in the middle of those big deals, there's an opportunity for a fresh word. And that's what I want us to think about for a few moments this morning. Isaiah 43, begin reading at verse 14. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, for your sake I will send to Babylon and break down all the bars, and the shouting of the Chaldeans will be turned to lamentation. I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King, Thus says the Lord, who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters, who brings out chariot and horse, army and warrior. They lie down, they cannot rise. They are extinguished, quenched like a wick. Do not remember the former things or consider the things of old. I am about to do a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The wild animals will honor me and the jackals and the ostriches for I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I formed for myself so that they might declare my praise. Two words that define our life every day, whether we're conscious of it or not, are simply the words remember and forget. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, you know that over and over and over again, the God of the Old Testament and the New Testament says to us, remember, 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 which is why it's such a shock when suddenly in the middle of Isaiah 43, God says, and now I'd like you not to remember. Do not consider the former things. For behold, I have come to do something new. What could God possibly mean when he says this? What's happening in this text is that Israel, as you can imagine, had been pining for the good old days. It was nostalgia to the hilt You can imagine how they could have sat around the fires at night and just loved telling the stories of the good old days back in Jerusalem. They had every right to think that was the way life was to be. Every right to think that was surely what God intended. And now suddenly they find themselves as strangers in a strange land. It seemed at first as though it was all about Babylon. And it takes them time to understand that in fact this is God's unexpected hand in Babylon to call them away from Jerusalem as strangers in a strange land to now consider anew. Who and what will they worship? So therefore, he says, don't consider the former things, the things of old. Lay them down. See, the interesting thing is that in order for God to be able to do this new thing, this shaking and rocking and wakefulness that God is committed to on the part of Israel, they have to actually be willing to lay down the things of old. Were they bad things? No, they weren't bad things. Was the temple the wrong thing? It was not the wrong thing. Were the poor kings? No, yes, good and bad and all that. But really, God was in the old things. But those are not the things that God is now saying you need to remember. It's not about nostalgia. It's not about returning to what was. It's actually becoming ready and prepared and empty handed enough to receive the thing that God is wanting now to give as a new gift. That's the great privilege of this moment in Israel's life. So God says, so now, trust me, lay down the former things, just like get them off of your hands. Get them out of your grip. Don't demand that God do today what God did before. Transitions like this are really interesting in churches' lives because, in a way, your individual lives and your story of your life as a church will be made up of how you remember and how you forget. That is the story of our individual lives, and it is absolutely the story of a congregation's life. What will you remember? And what will you, in this case, even deliberately forget? That is, lay down. Every church has its memories. Every community has its great histories. In a way, we wanna cling to those, especially when we're just on the cusp of the beginning of this transition. No, 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 we don't wanna let go of it. Yet, grief is real, change is hard. It's really difficult to let go. It's hard to be open to new things when you really, really liked the old thing. I've had the privilege and the challenge of following some lions of leadership. One of those came in the context of my time serving as the pastor of the First Presbyterian Church of Berkeley. It's a church that had an extraordinary history, has had a history of some amazing, remarkable pastors that preceded me, and one of those was Robert Boyd Munger. Some of you will know him because he was for some time at Fuller and he had done many other things that perhaps uh, crossed paths with you. Anyway, Bob Munger was the pastor from 1945 to 1962. I arrived as a senior pastor in 1993. Yes, that would be 31 years after Bob Munger was the pastor. I love Bob. I know him. knew him well. He's a treasured, beloved mentor. But there was hardly a Sunday that went by for the next 17 years, <laughs> now 50-some years after he was the pastor, where I didn't stand at the back door of the church and have somebody come up to me and go, you know, um, I just wanted to meet you. I'm, I had to come back here because I'm so-and-so, and I was here, and I knew how the sentence was going to end. I was here when Bob Munker was the pastor. I would sometimes finish the sentence. How did you know, they would say. Just a guess, just a guess that maybe, maybe you'd come because Bob Munker had been the pastor here. So tell me, I would say, so what do you remember about Bob Mugger? Oh gosh, there were so many things. It was the post-war years and there was this incredible flourishing of the church and all these people came to Christ and hundreds of people went out in global service all around the world. It was just the most remarkable time. And then my favorite time, my favorite time, this is the way the story would usually go. My favorite time, it was, it was on Sunday night. Did you know that we used to have a Sunday night service? I've heard that, I have said. There was a Sunday night service, and and we would, it would always end in exactly, it was so meaningful, it was just, it ended just the same way every Sunday night. The lights would all go down, and there would be a spotlight on the cross, and Bob Munger would stand and sing the first verse of the hymn that we always sang that night. Oh, now that was the gospel. Good, thanks for coming. Uh, Glad that you're here, and uh, by all means, come back if you want to. But don't ever expect the lights to dim and for me to sing a solo. (laughs) Believe me, that would not be the gospel in your life. (laughs) No good news from my singing voice. Now, it would be possible to imagine that that could have been an absolutely constricting expectation, and for some, they wanted it to be. Let me just tell you how you should really do things, they would say. You know, when Bob was here, which Bob, I would always want to clarify. There was only one Bob, but I just loved sort of asking that annoying question. Which Bob was that that you were thinking of? Well, that Bob. Oh, oh, oh got it, Bob Munger. Okay, now what about it? The whole idea was to basically return to the nostalgic past. Let's just get back to the 1940s. That's what we should do. We should figure out the 40s and do it again that's just a hard thing to do. And it turns out that it is not the way that God has created time. And even more than that, it turns out that not everything that happened from 1945 to 62 was absolutely the peak of glory. Close, but not the peak. Let's just believe that perhaps 1993, 97, 2006, maybe God could do a new thing. See, the challenge that you have right now as a church is that you've been so deeply blessed by a wonderful season of ministry and so many good and rich things have been given to you that there's a tendency to want to just hold on to that pretty tightly and to believe and measure whatever the future is going to be that it better be at least that good. And the point is, it doesn't even have to be like that at all. Not if we're hearing. Not only this theme in Isaiah, but even more deeply the theme that is in the New Testament that God has come to do a new thing and to create a new people and to demonstrate through us a new humanity and to not be a church that looks like 1947 when we are desperately in need of a church that looks like it's meant to be in 2019 and beyond. And the gift and the challenge of this text is that to do that, you will have to lay some things down. So the question is, what will those things be? How will you learn to practice a collective forgetfulness, an ability to remember and be grateful, to receive the good gift, and then to just lay it down in respect, but no longer demanding that the current time or the future is about a recreation of that? Now, see, for people in churches that have loved the past season, that's a very hard thing to do. For people that may have been looking for change, that's an easier thing to do, but actually it's no less tricky because sometimes you can hold on to the things you didn't like before. And that becomes its own curse in a church's ability to be able to move into a new season. So friends, your future is in part in your hands by deciding whether or not you're prepared to actually lay down the past. Not in disregard, not in disrespect, nothing like it. God didn't say those things were bad. He said those are just not the new things I'm going to do. So now lay them down so that your hands are open to receive the new gift. Now this is the thing that's then quite surprising when we come to chapter 46 and we hear something that is, in light of the first part, pretty shocking. We begin to read at verse 3. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel, who have been born by me from your birth, carried from the womb. Even to your old age, I am he. Even when you turn gray, God says, I will carry you. I have made and I will bear. I will carry and I will save. To whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me as though we were alike? Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh out silver in the scales, they hire a goldsmith who takes all of that precious metal and makes it into a god. Then they fall down and they worship the thing they've just made. They lift it to their shoulders, they carry it, they set it in its place and it stands there. It cannot move from its place. If one cries out to it, it does not answer or save anyone from trouble. So remember this and consider Recall it to mind, you transgressors, remember the former things. The things of old. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from the ancient times, things not yet done. Saying, my purpose shall stand and I will fulfill my intention. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man for my purpose from a far country. I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have planned, and I will do it. So in 43, do not consider the former things. And in 46, remember the former things. So how are these two things put together? By the time we come to this in chapter 46, God is really saying something quite different than he was rejecting in 43. In 43, it was this resistance to let go of God, of the expectation that God would simply do what God has done. But in 46, God's now saying, remember who I am. I am the God of the former things. So remember the God of the former things. Hold on to that because that God is going to be the same God today and in the future as God was in the past. But the God who's doing new things, that God is the same. Don't forget to remember the God of the former things. But then don't expect me to do now what I did before, but remember that I am the same. I will be faithful. I will be faithful. I will be faithful. Because I am the same yesterday, today, and forever. There's this extraordinary sense in this chapter 46 where now it's desperately important that we remember the God of the former things because that God who did the amazing things before is still the same God and we want to worship the same God but the God of the former things is a God who now today wants to do a new thing and that new thing will have a resemblance at times to things of the past because it will be established by the God of the same character, the God of the same heart, the same vision, the same hopes and desires. But it will be a new manifestation because it's required for us to become new, made new, by being made like the God we claim to worship. The church has never really liked this theme. We don't like it because frankly, we just are prone to nostalgia. We're not always as prone as we should be to wakefulness toward the deep transformative reality of what God wants to do in our lives. If we were to say quite seriously, now today, this week, your, your calling, your vocation is to actually become like Jesus Christ. Once we got over the thought that we would, of course, consider that by our own strength, as, as is true, impossible to achieve, I dare say we would also find it unappealing. It's just not the way that we've actually organized our lives. We've organized our lives in light of our sociology and our education and our gender and our race and our politics and our TV preferences. And it just turns out to say you're meant to become a person who looks like, acts like, loves like, serves like Jesus Christ, that just seems a little dramatic, don't you think? just a little overextended in its reach. And yet that is the new thing that God wants to make. The question is not how can Lake Avenue be like any pastor who has ever served here or ever will serve here. The new thing is how is Jesus Christ going to be manifest in this congregation in such a way that this church looks ever more like the God that you worship in Jesus Christ. That's your vocation. And the eye that needs to be on, in view at this particular moment, especially in a season of transition, is we need to lay down the good things and the other things of the past in order to receive God's good gift. And we need to look to the future, not in some starry-eyed-like way, but in a way that actually rivets our attention toward what does it mean to become people whose life and character and relationships, private and public life, is a reflection of God's love in Jesus Christ. That's what Lake Avenue Congregational Church is needed for. That's why you are actually here in this city and in this region and in this place in the world, in this chapter of history, is to demonstrate that God is doing not just in your lives because of a pastoral transition, but in the world, a new thing. And when so often it looks to people outside the life of the church, that the church doesn't look any different than the culture that's around it. We are just a mirror of the sociology that we happen to be born into or have found ourselves or achieved our way into. Instead of looking more like the radical love and mercy and justice and graciousness of God, then it's no wonder that people think, so what's the church about? It seems so indistinguishable. It's partly because we're so preoccupied with holding on to things that we were Things that we liked, things that we believe were the things that were the right things. I think of so many times and ways in church life where this gets practiced. I I can think of, of a church, for example, where I have often preached. It's one of these churches that has smaller facilities than it needs for the worshiping congregation that it has. So you have multiple services, and they're stacked, and you're preaching at the beginning, middle, and end of different services, and in between, you're actually going through the highways and byways of the church in order to get to the right service space in the building at the the right time. And in one of these little ventures, I always am taken through this tiny little kitchen. Maybe you've been in kitchens like this. It's a tiny little church kitchen. You can smell it when you walk through it. You just go... Church kitchen, this smells like church kitchen. You can tell it's been the place where a lot of good food has been served and a lot of good love has been shared. But the interesting thing about this particular kitchen is also that though I am only in it for 15 seconds as I pass through the kitchen, there are labels on every door and they say things like, don't even think about. (laughs) Don't you dare. No, stop, not here. Interesting. Somebody believes they really have power clear. They have yellow tape and they have big black markers and they know just what to put on the doors to control the kitchen. Because a kitchen in a church can be a problematic thing. Anybody say amen to that? A church and a kitchen can be a problematic thing. I get that. And it's worth trying to figure out how to do church management in a good way. But I have to question whether that's really actually the aroma of Jesus Christ. But let's imagine that the person really intends it. Do you have a kitchen person like that here? Maybe, maybe a bunch of them. Every church has them. They're desperately important. They're doing a really faithful thing to try to say, but we, we are really, really, really going to take care of our kitchen in a really great way. That's really important. And it is not itself the kingdom of God. And there is perhaps a different aroma that Jesus would want to be identified with a center of hospitality. And yeah, it needs to be clean, and it needs to be well-ordered, and it needs to not cause germ problems. But maybe there's another way of living, a a new thing that God might do in that kitchen. So as I pass through for 15 seconds, I think, oh, God, do a new thing. What are the kitchens in your life or in this church that may just be really sensible? They came out of history. You know that people just don't take care of their dishes like they should. You are determined that this time around they're going to take care of their dishes. Maybe you have your own experiences of that. Not just in kitchens, but in fellowship groups, in youth ministries, in the way that decisions are made, how power is handled here. You're a congregational church. Congregational churches tend to be filled with people who feel really good about their vote. That's part of why you like being in a church like this, because you really want to exercise your vote. I'm a Presbyterian, so I sort of am for your voting, but I'm only kind of, sort of, for your voting. But you've decided this is your congregation and it has congregational governance and that means that you're gonna vote and that's a really honorable thing. But it also means that in that context there can be sort of lots of little cul-de-sacs that form in churches about who's gonna vote what way and how's, who's really in on the real conversations and how will power be managed and who's included and who is not included and why. Those are all really, really interesting places where We can just mirror the way that populist vote goes or we can ask in populist votes, how do we do our life together as a community that seeks to honor Christ and be open to the new thing that God wants to do? Remember the God of the former things. The God of the former things can bring something new out of what is old, out of what seems apparently dead. This becomes the ultimate thing that of course happens in the New Testament when the thing that seems so old and so assured was that death was death and then out of the death of Jesus comes the reality of this utterly new thing which is the resurrection. And we are called to be utterly new people, living into that newness that only Jesus Christ can bring. So friends, what are you prepared to lay down? What, what in this season, over time, will you open yourselves to believing you should let the past be the past? And then how will you open yourself to the God of the old things, who now today wants to do a new thing? And what will it take for you to fully receive that and for this to be a season that you look back on and say, I was changed in that season to be more deeply and truly a reflection of the God that I worship, which is the purpose. So the old and the new, your future will be based on what you forget and what you remember and how you negotiate that together. We see this on the national front in our own national narrative. Which part of our story do we remember and which part of our story do we lay down? Whose voices and narratives get heard and what voices and narratives don't get heard? How do we understand those things and and allow those things to actually teach us? And then how do we open ourselves to the new thing that God wants to do in our own lives, in this church, in our national life? How do we open ourselves to that new thing? Are we clear that the God of the former things is also the God of the new things? And that the God who was faithful in the past will be faithful in the future? And that the purpose and call of this moment is not to forget the past or reject the past or deny the past, but to receive it and lay it down in order to turn dependent on the grace of God to the new reality that God alone can actually bring, and then the question is, do we really believe that God will do a new thing? A number of years ago, when I was still the pastor at the First Presbyterian Church in Berkeley, I got a call from a woman I hadn't met. She had been listening to our services on the radio. She said, I'd like to come and see you, but you'd have to agree to certain things before I could do so. I said, okay, so what's up? She said, well, I would need to meet off the church premises. I'd need to be in a public space, outdoors. I'd need to be able to pace and swear and smoke and yell, because frankly, I just have a lot I need to get off of my chest. I said, okay, maybe just one little question. Do you have a gun? (laughs) And (coughs) she sort of laughed a little bit and said, well, I don't expect to. I took that as good enough. So we met at this nearby park It was just within minutes of beginning our conversation when out came the torrent of rage and pain and anguish that she was deserving of having precisely as great a response to as she was. We met again and again and again, and often at a park where I would sit on this bench and you know how park benches are often separated, so she would sit on that bench over there yelling sometimes the most unbelievable things in public space about how she felt about her life, her experience, the people she'd been with, the things that had influenced her, the rage and anger and pain that she was experiencing. Finally, one day she said, you know, what all this comes down to is, I just need to know this, is there a God somewhere in the universe that can actually help me we turned toward that direction and it, it was really the question of can God do a new thing. It seemed as though the conversation was moving in a promising direction and then we came to the end of our time and, and she left and I left and I was looking forward to the next meeting that we'd set up and I arrived and she didn't appear and eventually I called her and and the phone had been disconnected. I drove to the address that I had for her, and she had moved out, and there was no forwarding address either. I didn't know anyone who knew her. I had no idea where she had gone or what any of this story was about. I, I asked around in various places. I went back to the neighborhood a few times, just asking around, does anybody know this person, and is there any way that we could, you could help me find them? Nothing ever came to anything. Eventually, the internet comes into existence. I look for her name periodically, never found her. I move eventually with my family from the Bay Area down to Pasadena, and I'm at a coffee shop, and I am standing at the cash register, and you know how there's a change jar, this was a donations jar, and next to it was a slip of paper that described some circumstances in Myanmar, Burma, and then it was signed at the end, at the bottom, this, it said, and if you'd like to know more about this, you can contact me at, and gave the first initial and, and last name of the person's email, which happened to correspond with her rather unusual last name. I thought, oh my gosh, this is wild. So I quickly sent her an email, and then I sort of sat at my monitor hoping that she would (laughs) respond. She didn't respond immediately, but within a couple of hours, she wrote back and she said, "Um, yeah, that's me. I'm surprised you remembered me, she said. I said, oh, no, 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 no. It's not at all a problem that I remembered you. That's, that's all very, it's really clear to me that I remembered you. That's, that's not a problem. I'm just surprised that you remembered me, and I was just wanting to kind of pick up the story. Where are you now? I, I'm in the Sierras. Why are you in the Sierras, she told me. I said, well, where do you live? She said, well, I actually live in Pasadena. You live in Pasadena? Really? What do you do in Pasadena? I'm a student at Fuller Theological Seminary. (laughs) You are a student at Fuller Theological Seminary. She said, yeah. Wow, I said, that's not what I would have expected. That's not where the old things were when I last knew her. She said, let's wait and tell the story in person. When I saw her the first time, She was facially recognizable, but her whole persona was transformed. A couple of decades had passed. She was a new person. And all the rage and the anger and the suffering that she had experienced had somehow, in the grace of God, been able to be laid down so that she could become the new person that God had called her to be. She's graduated from Fuller, she's continuing on in the work of ministry to which she's been called. It is one of the most remarkable stories of personal transformation that I've ever seen, especially with no intervening chapters. But the God of former things was a faithful God. Knew her, loved her, found her, called her, rescued her, redeemed her, healed her, remade her, and she is now a person who reflects that newness. She'd be the first to say, I have a long way to go. I'm not done. But it's a real change. It's a faithful transformation. It's the sign that God can do something new. God can do something new in you. I need God to do something new in me. Fuller Theological Seminary needs God to do something new in us. There is something at risk in this, which is nothing less than the evidence that the God who made all things for worship is not done, and still wants to remake us to reflect the reality of God's love and mercy and justice. May that be the work of this season at Lake Avenue and at Fuller Seminary in my life and in yours. Lord, by your grace, we acknowledge how deeply we need you. This work of newness Requires your death and resurrection. It is no triveling matter It will require your sacrifice It will require the indwelling of your spirit But it will also require oh God that we allow this deep transformative work to occur May we not play at worship or play at being disciples But may we become people who more and more look like you O God of the former things, may we lay them down. And God of the new things, may we be open to receive. In Jesus' name.